A few weeks ago, a good friend of mine and I had a long conversation about this. When initially the United States was reported to have basically shipped to Ukraine nearly its entire stockpile of 155 millimeter ammunition that was stored in the European theater. Now, think about that. That would mean that almost every available artillery shell that could be used in combat for a caliber that is basically the standard round of NATO in United States military stockpiles in Europe had been used up. And now we're seeing this. Sky News in London uh, interviewed a market analyst, they call, who was the former uh, air defense minister for NATO and the UK, Sean Bell. When General Bell was uh, asked uh, about the situation and what it means for the United States to have basically sent to Ukraine over a million rounds of 155 millimeter caliber ammunition, it clearly stated just what kind of stockpile this is. You see, the United States not only lost a million rounds or more of ammunition when they packed up and left Afghanistan, but they also lost a tremendous amount of ammunition during the crisis with ISIS, when ISIS overran certain portions of Iraq where there were stockpiles of U.S. ammunition. It is still not certain if ISIS was able to use a lot of that ammunition to create IEDs and other devices. But that stockpile was in the hundreds of thousands of rounds. In Afghanistan, it was known definitely that the United States had a major stockpile of heavy ammunition in that area, in that theater of operation. Artillery was heavily used to keep the Taliban and other rebel forces in Afghanistan at bay. Artillery is still primarily the main way that armies win battles. The fact that Afghanistan has used up so much ammunition from the United States stockpiles should show you that against a not-so-modern opponent and adversary, it took the United States a huge portion of its arsenal, stockpile of arms and weapons, to just be able to maintain parity in a guerrilla war, not a conventional war, which is what is being fought in Europe. Now, Sean Bell goes into it in more specific detail and rather clearly. And let's listen to what he has to say when he was talking to Sky News. And, of course, he was the former British Air Vice Marshal and what exactly his role was and how he can look at the situation and explain it. It is somewhat alarming. Ammunition has been uh, inevitably quite topical, even though it's uh, relatively simple. But I guess it's a vital part of any battlefield at the moment. And, and trying to get behind the story a bit is the, the key issue here. If we look at some of the statistics, America has donated over a million uh, rounds of the artillery since the start of the conflict. Um, but the challenge is that the production that its industry can provide is less than a tenth of that. So it will take some years for it to recoup. And even if it surges that industry, we're still looking for several years before it can recover that those war stocks. And that's before you provide anything else to Ukraine in the coming year. 
Um, now, why has this shortfall come about? Well, the West had never anticipated that there'd be a war of this scale, of this duration, of this ferocity to happen in Europe anytime soon. And all of your defence planning assumptions were based on much smaller conflicts, much, more, uh, much smaller in size and scale and ferocity, and therefore war stocks that should have lasted for years actually are only lasting for weeks, and in some cases only in, in terms of days. The Russia's mode of operation here, it's a 20th century warfare, they have years' worth of artillery rounds because that's how they fight. They've been using 20,000 rounds of artillery a day. They don't care about the devastation that's wreaked behind them, whereas Ukraine uh, is a much smaller country, has much smaller stocks of this ammunition, and it's quite difficult for the West to source Russian artillery rounds. So part of this is uh, making sure that Ukraine is properly furnished, but also um, because it's not just about the artillery rounds, it's also about the equipment that fires them, and you need to provide spare support and stuff like that. And bluntly, the West has not always provided the most modern equipment to Ukraine, and therefore there is quite a sustainment tell that's associated with that. Well, so, so is there that a separate issue about replacing uh, or, or just giving, in the first instance, the kind of more complicated equipment, not just the, the ammunition? Definitely. What the West does not want to do is for Ukraine to be dragged into a slugging match, a grinding uh, war of attrition on the ground. So the West, which fights 21st century warfare using precision weapons uh, and, and the like, is aiming to reduce collateral damage, reduce the um, implications for lives for soldiers and particularly for civilians. Um, and that's what we provide to Ukraine. Ukrainian support has been, it's been decisive because not only they've stopped the Russian advance, but they've actually managed to push the Russians back. But the supply is limited. And we'll use a couple of examples here of, of why it's limited. This is the US um, uh, guided multi-launch rocket system that um, the Americans provided to Ukraine. Uh, it's got, they've been hitting about 400 targets uh, a, a month um, and not only do they provide the equipment, they provide the rockets as well. Now at the moment they've handed over that many in a year. Their industry is able to provide about that same number a year so it's sustainable and if industry was to surge it's about double the number. So this is a sustainable way of supporting Ukraine. However However, if you look at Javelin, which is another example, that's a, an American anti-tank uh, weapon. The Americans provided 8,500 of these during the war, and they've stopped providing them now because their war stocks have got to a level which the Americans are worried it will compromise their ability to do wars elsewhere. This is the level that industry can provide. It'll take a decade to build up, and even if they surge, we're talking about, about many years. I was just going to say very quickly, the, the U.S. keeps what level back in, in the U.S.? Ten times this amount that they've given it's away? It's very difficult. It, the levels of war stock are intensely secret because they're all based on rates of effort and how much you're going to keep in the, uh, uh, available for a war. What we do know, though, is that it's very unusual for the Americans to stop providing support. This has hit a critical number. But mm -hmm. it's also aware, even in the U.K., we gave 10,000 Enlor missiles, which are anti-tank. The key message here, though, Bluntly, is, uh, uh, Russia has put its industry onto a war footing. At the moment, NATO and the UK are simply opening the cupboard, seeing what's there and providing it. Eventually, NATO will have to find a more sustainable model, together with industry, to provide Ukraine with the quantity and the quality of material it needs to win this war. So basically, you're listening there to Sean Bell as he was talking on Sky News. And of course, he is an analyst for Sky News. But we are taking him as his former position in the British military you know as as an air vice marshal who uh, essentially is is saying that the united states and the uk and much of nato is running out of ammunition and its ability to fight its battle uh in ukraine by proxy 
with this uh, conflict that is going on. It is as if, basically, uh, what is happening in Ukraine on the ground is with a force that would be needed to counter Russia, Ukraine is essentially getting almost all the abilities and capabilities of a full NATO partner or full NATO ally fighting Russia. Uh, it has not, however, received air support weapons. And uh, this is what Ukraine is now calling for. That, you know, hey, you've given us all the artillery, you've given us all the bullets, you've given us all the uh, the uh, cannon capability, uh, you've given us these uh, advanced munitions uh, such as HIMARS, which are missiles that are uh, basically fired uh, at, at a very short range that are capable of, of hitting targets with extreme accuracy. But I think what is very important with what Sean Bell was saying, of course, is the fact that the United Kingdom and the United States are essentially looking at these types of situations uh, where they actually have to pull back and say, hey, wait a minute, you know, we, we can't afford to continue to maintain uh, this level of support uh, for the, uh, you know, situation that is going on in Ukraine because it's just not sustainable for the United States to be able to do this. It is, it is not sustainable uh for the uh for, for the uh, situation uh that that is going on um it is completely uh essentially um the the basic capabilities of u.s forces to be able to request and produce from american industry the level of support needed to be able to combat the situation on the ground in Ukraine by Russia uh, is not sustainable at this point in time. So some of the graphics that he was showing there, some of the maps that he's showing there, and, and I will indeed put a link back to the situation, uh, the, the entire area of how the level of uh, American production and UK production, and in fact, European production, is incapable of matching this because much of our production capacity has been outsourced and sent elsewhere is another aspect that has not been discussed by Sean Bell. But that is one of the major problems here. You have a situation wherein uh, there is a huge percentage of the United States' capability to be able to arm its ally uh, in the Ukraine in this in this fight, and let's face it, even though it is not a member of NATO, Ukraine is a, is an American ally by default, um, and, and that is the situation. But uh, the uh, Senate Finance Committee is holding hearings, you know, and and looking at at the situation to be able to try and figure out how the United States can possibly sustain, you know, tens of billions of dollars in support for this. Uh, you know, the the uh, ability to to supply the, these all these weapons to Ukraine, and yet uh, not be able to essentially supply many things in uh, the uh, the um, uh, you know not be able to to give in uh, to to what is uh, to what is what is needed. You know, um, this is basically what what 
a lot of people are looking at. This is basically, uh, you know, how it is going on. And, uh, you know, there was a NATO dialogue, you know, about, oh, I'd say five hours ago. And uh, Lloyd Austin, who is, who is the American Defense Secretary, you know, ha- gave a briefing to members of the media as to what exactly was, you know, discussed and uh, how this uh, went on today uh, there in uh, Kiev and uh, how exactly uh, the, the entire situation uh, w- was going on. Now, Defense Secretary Austin uh, did hold a briefing after this NATO Defense uh, Ministry meeting uh, in Brussels. And uh, this is, you know, prior to his, of course, going to Ukraine to, to look at the situation on the ground himself and see for himself uh, what is going on. Let's listen in as uh, Secretary Austin, uh, you know, uh, talks to and makes an opening statement and uh, holds a briefing um, in this, uh, you know, February 15th briefing that took place uh, in Brussels, in Belgium, as uh, the Defense Secretary makes his comments. Opening remarks, and then we'll have time for just a few questions. Please note that I will be moderating and we'll call on the journalists, and we do have a very tight schedule, so I appreciate your limiting follow-ups. With that, I'll turn it over to Secretary Austin. Thanks, Pat. Well, good afternoon, everyone. It's great to be back at NATO. Let me thank the Secretary General for gathering all of us and for his steadfast leadership of this alliance during historic and challenging times. First, on behalf of the United States, let me again express my deepest condolences to our NATO ally, Turkey, to the people of Turkey and Syria, and to all who are mourning and suffering after last week's devastating earthquake. I know that all of our hearts are with the families of the victims, and we'll continue to work closely with our Turkish allies to meet their most urgent needs and to try to ease the terrible suffering in the region. Turn to some of the other business that we discussed today. It's been nearly one year since Russia's cruel and unprovoked invasion of Ukraine, and nearly a year since Putin's reckless war of choice plunged Europe into its worst security crisis since the end of World War II. And the outcome of this tragic and unnecessary war is profoundly important to Ukrainian security, European security, and to global security. Putin didn't just assault a peaceful and sovereign and democratic UN member state. He also threatened the hard-won system of rules and rights that has made Europe stronger and safer for more than seven decades. But things haven't gone the way that the Kremlin planned. Putin expected Ukraine to surrender. And he expected the world to submit. History will record something very different. History will remember the courage of the Ukrainian people. And history will remember the determination and strength of the NATO alliance. Almost a year after Russia's imperial invasion of Ukraine, 
NATO is more unified and more resolute than ever. We are determined to stand with Ukraine's brave defenders for as long as it takes. And we are also determined to protect every inch of NATO territory. Putin's flagrant aggression has changed the security environment for every member of this alliance and for countries around the world. You could see the scope of the global response again yesterday when some 50 nations of goodwill gathered for the ninth meeting of the Ukraine Defense Contact Group. And these challenges were an important part of this NATO ministerial. We talked today about how to ensure that NATO remains prepared to confront the dangers ahead. At the Madrid summit in June, NATO leaders agreed on a fundamental shift in our collective defense and deterrence. We are strengthening our capabilities for the long term to deter and defend against all threats across all domains. We're upgrading our defense plans and putting more forces at higher levels of readiness. Today, we discuss the progress that we've made since Madrid and our ongoing work as we move towards the Vilnius summit in July. In Vilnius, our leaders will agree on a new defense investment pledge to ensure that the alliance has the resources to carry out these new plans. We had productive conversations about that pledge, and we look forward to working with our valued allies to ensure that we all do even more to invest in our shared security. We also discussed our progress in building up ammunition stockpiles and boosting defense industrial, industrial capacity. And NATO allies have dug deep over the past year, and both President Biden and I are deeply grateful. But we still have much more to do. Even as we rush to support Ukraine in the critical months ahead, we must all replenish our stockpiles to strengthen our deterrence and defense for the long term. Now, this alliance has always drawn strength from its shared devotion to the values of freedom, democracy, and human rights. We've seen that in action over the past year as our extraordinary allies have stepped up to condemn, Putin, to condemn Putin's imperial aggression, to support Ukraine's right to defend itself, and to, str to strengthen our collective defense. We will not be drawn into Putin's war of choice, but we will never waver in carrying out NATO's preeminent task. And that task is to defend this great alliance's people and their territory. America's commitment to that core mission is unflinching. America's commitment to Article 5 is ironclad. And we're proud to work alongside our NATO allies to defend the forces of freedom and to build a safer world. So thank you very much, and I'll take a few questions. Thank you, Mr. Secretary. Our first question will go to Tom Secretary Reznor. Thank you. Good afternoon, Mr. Secretary. 
1914, as troops invading France moved through this very region, those in charge of the defense in Paris scrambled to rush men and materiel to blunt that offensive. They had little time to react and threw everything they could, including taxicabs, to get what was needed into the fight to counter that offensive, and they succeeded. Now, from NATO Secretary General on down, many here have acknowledged that the Russians have either started or will soon begin an offensive of some proportion before the Ukrainians can do the same. So a similar scramble seems to be looming. Yesterday, you outlined a deep and wide range of military support pledged to Ukraine. You just mentioned it again today. But with ports jammed and railways clogged with some production off pace, how certain are you that this support will get to Ukraine in time? Or, as you just said in your opening remarks, how will history record something very differently? Thank you. Well, you know, you notice there in the question, the reason I'm interrupting this is because it's so clear that this question and answer was submitted in advance. Uh, it is very obvious that the journalist at this press conference is not speaking extemporaneously and asking a question straight off. That this has become basically almost a dog and pony show in a bit of a way where you basically have to submit your questions in advance in order to be able to be understood, where in, in fact there is, a, there, there is this process before, you know, almost, almost an imperial style of asking questions. Very European, but something that is not typically a situation for an American defense secretary. And why the U.S. defense secretary is keeping to this is unclear. This isn't the way I've covered other uh, you know, defense officials of the United States. Colin Powell, you could ask him questions straight off the bat from the hip and ask straight away. This situation is completely strange. Let's get back to uh, Secretary uh, Austin's answer on this question, which essentially has to do with our topic, which is, is the United States and NATO capable of supplying what Ukraine needs in order to defeat the Russians' intentions? of the war that is going on there. Thank you. Thanks, Tom. Um, what we're seeing from Russia is Russia is c continues to pour large numbers of additional people into the fight. And those people are ill-trained and ill-equipped. And because of that, we see them uh, incurring a lot of casualties. And we'll probably con continue to see that going forward. That's, uh, that's their strength. They have a lot of people. Our goal is to make sure that we give Ukraine uh, additional capabilities so that they can be not only be uh, marginally successful, they can be decisive on the, uh, on the battlefield in, the, in their upcoming offensive. And so you've seen us... Uh, move to provide Bradley fighting vehicles. You've seen us move to provide strikers, martyrs, leopard tanks, and a number of other things that we're pulling together to provide them additional capability that I think will make a pretty significant difference in their, in their counteroffensive in the spring. So we're laser focused on making sure that we provide a capability and not just platforms, Tom. So for every system that we provide, we're going to train troops on that system, but we're also going to give them additional training on, on maneuver, on the integration of fires, on sustainment, and, uh, and on maintenance. 
And so with that additional capability, better trained troops, uh, platforms that can perform a lot better in, in this environment, uh, I think they'll have a real good chance at uh, making a pretty significant difference on a battlefield and establishing the, uh, the uh, initiative and being able to exploit that initiative going forward. Looking at the reactions of uh, Secretary Austin, I hate to say it again, is he's reading something. So why did they even bother to have this press conference? Why didn't they just release statements? You know, it's pretty obvious uh, that that essentially this this is something that is that is handled pre-wise, and that the questions and answers are submitted in advance. And uh, it just makes you wonder. You know, this is something you would see in the former Soviet Union. This is something you would see with, with uh, you know, other other groups. Uh, you know, they can prepare for the questions and the answers, but they can't seem to prepare for the inevitable problem of both the United States and European Union, particularly, for example, the UK, being unable to even sustain the production levels needed to allow Ukraine to fight the proxy war that is going on on its territory versus Russia, which basically indicates that if Russia has the resilience to be able to outlast Ukraine in this conflict, that Russia will probably prevail over the territories that they currently occupy. In the long run, obviously, Ukraine is going to try and take back as much of territory as as possible or perhaps even go beyond that. But that is something that NATO is unwilling to provide the support for for Ukraine to do beyond being able to defend itself and perhaps liberate the territories that, that are now occupied by Russia. However, would this include the Donbass region? That isn't stated. It isn't clear. You know, there is some reality to the fact that there are portions of Ukraine, or that were part of Ukraine, that indeed have a majority Russian population, where there were instances uh, that, that, you know, th those people did want to see that little section or that little area go back to Russia. And that is part of the, you know, the, the whole situation with the Ukraine, as it is called by Russians, because essentially Ukraine as a nation has always had populations that are mixed between native Ukrainians, who are originally from that area, and other ethnic cousins, essentially, who are more Russian than Ukrainian in terms of, of their outlook, in terms of their language, in terms of, of uh, their cultural background in terms even of the religion. They follow the Russian Orthodox Church. The Ukrainians have their own branch to, to the Orthodox Church. So there, there's some differences there. Subtle, but yet they exist. Anyhow, that's the latest for me for now on this. Uh, of course, uh, Secretary Austin did go on to talk a little bit further about it, and we'll try and throw the rest of this press conference uh, on there at some point. In the meantime, uh, that's the Mike of New York edition for today. A little bit longer than normal because we're unable to still edit. There is something wrong with the editing platform that is uh, encoded or embedded into the uh, in, into the, the platform that I'm using to upload these these things on on Anchor Podcasts, and that is why my pr productivity for these Anchor Podcasts have gone down. I do not know what is going on with Anchor at this time, and I've tried to talk to them about it, but there is definitely a problem. Uh, and of course my vision loss is, is making it even more difficult because, uh, you know, I am blind. It is hard to do these podcasts when you can't see so well. And it is even harder when the interface is just not working properly. Anyhow, well, let's hope that'll be resolved soon and we'll be able to come out with our usual, you know, two, three episodes a day. 
I'm Mike of New York. That's the latest for me for now from here in New York City. Wherever you may be, have a great day. God bless you. And God bless these United States of America.